Welcome to the Kentuckian, folks. Glad to have you with us. Howdy, everybody. Welcome back to the Kentuckian. You've probably heard about the recently leaked draft court opinion from the Supreme Court of the United States that was written by Justice Alito and that would overturn Roe v. Wade or Roe v. Wade, a landmark court decision that brought the question of abortion under the purview of the federal government. You've also perchance heard of the start of protests and riots over the leaked draft opinion. There's a few things that we should discuss on this issue. This is one of the biggest, if not the biggest or most important political, social, and moral happening of the last several decades, and it certainly deserves some attention. So first off, I want to talk about what Roe v. Wade does or doesn't do. Roe v. Wade doesn't ban abortion, or the overturning of Roe v. Wade wouldn't ban abortion. Let's get that straight off the bat. The Roe v. Wade decision brought abortion under the control of the federal government. Abortion had been considered a state issue until this point, and since folks at that time still had some semblance of decency, abortion was extremely heavily limited, if not outright illegal, in basically the entire United States. So I want to talk about some of the details of the Roe v. Wade decision. And again, overturning it would not ban abortion. It would send it back to the states. But let's let's talk about it in detail a little bit. The Roe v. Wade decision is actually pretty convoluted. And from a legal standpoint, it's never been very solid. But not until the last few years have decent legal challenges come up to Roe v. Wade. So even at the time, it was kind of like, uh, this is sort of stretching, but it just wasn't really challenged like it needed to be, and perhaps the justices at the time would not have, have, have uh, made the proper decision on Roe versus Wade. I mean, they certainly didn't the first time, and that the influence of the Supreme Court is a separate issue in and of itself. But basically, in the Roe v. Wade decision, the court said that abortion, similar to marriage or the use of contraceptives, fell into what they called the realm of, um, quote-unquote, zones of privacy. And because it fell into the a, a zone of privacy, it was a fundamental right. And that was based off of their interpretation. I would argue probably incorrect, uh, even the zones of privacy thing. Um, but again, we're not talking about that. It was based off a few constitutional amendments and some other court rulings on marriage, on contraceptive use and child rearing. And since they said or ruled that abortion fell into this zones of privacy issue, that it was a right and that the states couldn't regulate it or couldn't outright ban it and that the regulation of it was allowed, but it was very specific. Basically, the state could regulate abortion a certain amount, but it had more to do with the way they kind of described it is when it had to do with state interest. Again, pretty convoluted, um, but because it was kind of a privacy issue, that it put the limitations on restricting abortion onto the states um, instead of basically saying either that it was a state issue and the federal government doesn't have any jurisdiction over that, or what my, you could argue might be the better decision, that abortion is outright wrong and that it, it doesn't, it's not a human right to murder another human being. But anyway, getting a little off track there, the court 
at this point, came up with a trimester system to determine when a state could limit abortion and how much. So basically what they said is there were three trimesters. That's where the word trimester comes from. And these trimesters were kind of the benchmark for what a state could do to limit abortion. So the first trimester until viability of the infant Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I got ahead on my script there. Um, basically, the first trimester was completely off limits to regulation. So up until the end of the first trimester, the state could not do a single thing to regulate or limit abortion. From after the first trimester, so going into the second trimester until the infant reaches viability, the state can limit abortion a little within the context of kind of what I talked about, a couple of the defined state interest, but it still has to be very limited. Um, and then, the way they used it, when viability is reached, then a state can limit an abortion basically as much as they want to, including completely banning abortion after the third trimester. So what Roe v. Wade does in general is it makes abortion completely legal in the first trimester, it makes it somewhat regulated or the ability to, to have it regulated in the second trimester, and then in the third trimester, while it doesn't have to be, abortion is no longer like a quote-unquote protect, protected right and can be completely banned. Again, that's sort of a, that's a very basic explanation of it. As I mentioned, it was a somewhat convoluted decision. There are a bunch of issues with all of this. Uh, you all, you may very well have heard several of them. The various definitions have a lot of problems. Uh, we're not going to get into that right now. That's not the main purpose of this episode, although we will talk about a couple things um, towards the end. But as we talk about this, I hope we understand abortion's murder. Conception is the point at which a definably unique organism, a person, is generated, and that's sort of the assumption that we're going with. That's the truth. Um, but we're not focusing on that right now. So I want to we'll kind of come back to a couple little things. But this this episode isn't a direct discussion of the morality of abortion. It's under the assumption that abortion is evil, which is the correct assumption, in case you're wondering. But we can talk about the specifics at a later date. I want to talk right now about what the leak itself means. So there are several court cases and laws that certain states have passed um, to try and challenge Roe versus Wade. So basically, some states have passed abortion legislation that would outlaw it or extremely limit it beyond what the Supreme Court said was allowable for a state. And so basically what would happen is they pass this and then somebody's going to file a lawsuit and say, hey, this doesn't go. This violates federal law. And when they take it through the Supreme Court, then they can basically challenge the viability. <laughs> no pun intended the viability of the Roe versus Wade decision. It kind of sets them up to be able to um, challenge the decision and the laws, especially on, a, I think, the Alabama abortion bill from a couple years back in particular is written in such a way that it the, the very way that it defines some of these terms and so on, that it, it makes a strong case against the Roe versus Wade decision. Don't want to get too off in, into there. But anyway, so there are these there are these challenges that have come up. And. So that's a good thing. This is not like just it just randomly the court said that, oh, we're going to strike down Roe versus Wade. There's a lot of legal wranglings and, and 
lawsuits and legislation that's passed that's going on in the background to try and challenge Roe versus Wade. And recently, they've had several successes in actually being able to, to get this. And apparently, um, there is a case in the court right now because they are writing decisions, draft decisions um, on this case. Another thing to consider. So apparently, they are nearing the end of the, the deliberation process for this particular case. They've basically, it seems like, made their decision Justice Alito has written a draft, and just in case you're not familiar, the way it kind of works is the Supreme Court votes on what the decision will be, and then one of the justices, and I think oftentimes it's the Chief Justice, but it's not always the Chief Justice, um, will write an opinion. And the opinion is basically their um, reasoning for voting this way and making this decision on whatever case is being presented to them. And sometimes what happens when a case is made that the minority of the justices don't like or don't think is constitutional or whatever, oftentimes there'll be a minority opinion that is released as well that is basically the other justices that didn't agree or maybe just one of them saying, this is why I don't think this is constitutional. But they had drafted this majority opinion, which means that's what the decision would be. That would be basically the official reasoning for why Roe v. Wade would be struck down. And that's pretty standard operating procedure. That's how the courts functions. Well, a draft opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States has never, ever in its entire history been leaked to the public. That in and of itself is significant. You're talking about some fundamental principles and some fundamental lines that are not supposed to be crossed in the sense of trying to keep uh, justice from being blind, right? The whole idea of blind justice, that it's not biased by personal gain or threats of violence or skin color or whatever the case might be. And there's a lot of reasons that there's a lot of very specific, very particular uh, security precautions and really in some ways the Supreme Court in its actual day-to-day -day functionings is quite secretive. They don't they don't release much. They don't put out opinions until the official decision is made. And there's a reason for that. There's a lot of reasons for that. And for this to be leaked, of course we don't know who leaked it, but for this to be leaked is first of all kind of surprising that it even happened. And second is a massive, massive problem and a horrible uh sign for the way that uh whether it's aides or maybe justices themselves for the kind of political wranglings and biases that they are using and that are motivating such horrible, awful, problematic decisions um, such as leaking these documents. Now, this sort of thing has happened before, but not with the Supreme Court of the United States. The leaking of documents, character assassinations, um, releasing information that isn't necessarily secretive or not supposed to be released, but releasing it out of context so that it generates a certain perception. And basically using the response from that to effectively threaten the folks that are making the decisions. Perhaps you remember the riots and the threats to burn cities down if the proper verdict wasn't reached in some recent court cases where BLM was going around and doing those sorts of things or the way that certain footage from a police shooting was released, and it was released out of context or cut very specifically, so that what actually happened is very different from uh, what the video seemed to indicate, what the video seemed to, to, to show, because it was very specifically and cleverly cut. 
and edited. These sorts of things have happened a lot. It's the first time it's happened with the Supreme Court directly, and the leaking of this draft opinion should be clearly stated as an attempt to use the above-mentioned riots, the basically public disorder and, you know, maybe finding out where these people live. There's been times where addresses of certain political figures have been released and so on. Using these tactics to force a decision through what is, I mean, effectually you could call it public blackmail, right? It's public threatening because it's basically if we don't get what we want, then you don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, we might burn down the city. We might hunt down your family, that sort of thing. And that may go unsaid, although it, it also sometimes is actually said, but it's meant to try and affect the decision before it's made. So instead of making a decision based off the law, it's based off of, I don't want, you know, my house to get burned down. I don't want my family to be attacked. I don't want my family to go through all this and so on. It's clearly, that's clearly what this leak is meant to try and, and, uh, and do at least one of the key things that it's trying to do. But at the same time, these sorts of issues are often used to cover up what should be probably larger news stories. Now, in this case, I don't know that, I mean, abortion is such a massive topic. You could argue that it's not necessarily a bigger news case, but the leak may not simply be to try and get a biased uh, opinion, a biased decision because of, of threats and so on. It may also be to cover up some things. Say some recent stories about how there was just recently the release of tens of thousands of documents and pages of of information from Pfizer about, well, I want to be careful here, but that reveals some very troubling information about a certain shot. You can probably guess what I'm talking about, but that story has been very conveniently covered up by the Roe versus Wade stuff. Or maybe how the Biden administration has been predicting food shortages and for some reason, over the last few weeks, a bunch of food processing plants and similar food infrastructure has been mysteriously burning down. You can find this information if you look for it or if you go to the right sources, but mainstream media doesn't talk about it really at all. And they use stories like the Roe versus Wade story to, to basically capture people's uh, attention. Now, am I saying that this was leaked in order to cover up those potentially troubling stories and with the Pfizer story a big deal? The other story, probably a really big deal. We just don't know as much about it. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not saying the exact reason that it was released, but also it was leaked, but also the way that these stories are covered by people can obviously be to try and cover up other stories. Now, there's several cases of this happening, but I do want to give you another example to maybe help this hit home a little bit more. Think about how the war in Ukraine was suddenly on Every news channel, everywhere, everybody was talking about the war with Ukraine when when Putin invaded Ukraine. And it was conveniently when inflation was really skyrocketing, gas prices were shooting up, food prices were shooting up, everything was going up. And now nobody even hardly talks about Ukraine. It's certainly not in, in like the the public perception like it was three weeks ago. The media has basically moved on from Ukraine. I mean, they still talk about it a little bit here and there, but not like they did. They moved on to other stories, but they're still fighting over in Ukraine. The, the invasion's still ongoing, and there's a lot of information that everybody really probably needs to know about both Ukraine and Russia. And I think there's some important points to be made there. Think about how much what is covered and what is quote-unquote popular on the news can affect what you think about and what you even consider and realize is going on. 
it's a it's a big issue. And again, I'm not saying that the Roe v. Wade, the, the leaking of the documents was specifically connected to that, but it has obviously been used to cover up other really big stories that would theoretically enrage people, would really give people a different perspective on certain major events, especially of the last couple years. And there's some other points I think we could do well to think about, some other kind of considerations, some questions to ask ourselves, some other reflection, and some other things to remember. Just because the draft opinion if it stays basically as it is and the decision stays as it is, would overturn Roe v. Wade. If they stayed, we need to realize that there is a chance that the threats and riots and so on have their intended effect and Roe v. Wade is not overturned. So I would love to, to be on here today and say Roe versus Wade is done. It's struck down, it's done, finally, but that's just not the case. It should be the case, but we need to realize that all the pub well, I say public, all the backlash, a lot of it manufactured, uh, may have its intended effect. We need to realize that. We also need to realize that if Roe versus Wade is overturned, it doesn't make abortion illegal. However, there are many states that would have laws that would go into effect. Basically, some of these states have laws on their books that don't have legal that they can't enforce because of the federal government, but if Roe versus Wade is struck down, they will basically immediately go into a, to force. And there are other states that would likely pass laws pretty quickly to severely restrict, if not outright, outlaw abortion. So we need to understand what Roe v. Wade actually addresses, but also understand that there will be large swaths of the country where abortion is illegal, completely illegal, except maybe in the most, you know, in cases of rape and incest or to save the life of the mother. Now, that's sort of a separate issue in and of itself because there's not any medical case I know of where actively slaughtering the child is any way to save the mother, but we'll talk about that a little bit in a moment. I think we'll talk about it in a moment. I might have taken that out of my script. Actually, I did, so let's talk about that right now for a second. <clears throat> we do need to realize that there is no medical case that I know of that Aborting the child will save the life of the mother. Now, of course, there are cases where you have there. There's other medical complications, and you have there has to be a, a choice between whether to save the life of the mother or life of the child. That's not what I'm talking about. To actually abort the child to save the mother has never been a medical thing that I'm aware of. And rape and incest, we'll talk about that kind of in a second. And remember, the main focus isn't on the, the morality of abortion, but we will address a couple of those things a little bit. We need to realize that of all the many problems that this country has, and I think if you've listened to the Kentuckian for any amount of time, if you, if you pay attention to what's going on around us, you'll recognize that this country has got a whole laundry list of problems. The allowance of the slaughter of thousands of innocent children every day is a dark mark on this country and should be cause for abject shame. We should be totally and completely ashamed that abortion is allowed to occur like it does. There's always been death. There's always been suffering. And many times children suffer these things. That's the price of sin. Everyone suffers. Everyone suffers the consequences of sin to one degree or another. But to actively murder children for convenience sake is one of the most evil things that a people can practice or allowed to happen within their borders. And I thought about going a little more into the, the biblical side of it and some illustrations of that, but I decided not to for now. We might at another time. But 
basically, if you get to where you can just murder children like that, and this has happened before, even if it's not abortion, child sacrifice and everything worked basically the same way back in when paganism was much more common. That is about that is just about as low as a country can get. Make no mistake about that. And the United States of America that's supposed to be so great and so amazing has allowed that to happen for decades. And there's no excuse. And it should enrage people that this has been allowed to happen. It should. It should disgust them. It should enrage them. It is some of the most abject evil brutality that people have managed to imagine in this world. And it happens every day to thousands of children in the greatest country in the world. And maybe I, you can make the argument the United States is the greatest country in the world because honestly, the contend, there isn't much in the way of contenders. But the, the, the amount of just evil that we have allowed to flourish, not just with abortion, but particularly with abortion, is disgusting. And we need to realize just how bad it is. We always talk about how much we care about children, and they always use that when there's any kind of tragedy that involves children, if there's a school shooting or whatever the case is. They talk about how we want to protect the kids, and yet we put them through butcher houses every single day, and we don't bat an eye. It is... This is something that actually there I've got another episode that I'm going to talk about a specific application of this of this concept but how can we claim moral superiority and there are many people that do how can we claim moral superiority over any other group in the past for anything that they did when we allow abortion to be just so freely exercised and the people that even claim that it's wrong, again, oftentimes don't even really bat an eye to it. I got a little off track there. Uh, I don't want to get too far off track, but we need to we need to understand just how severe and how messed up the prevalence of abortion in this country is. They say one of the, the first step to fixing a problem is admitting that you have one. <laughs> and uh, we've got a big one. Another consideration, what kind of people protest and riot that they may not be allowed to butcher infants? There are a lot of people out there protesting. I know there's there's probably some people getting paid off and so on, and that's been a thing for the last few years at least. But there's still there's a lot of folks out there that actively, and to hear some of the stuff they say about relishing in the ability to have an abortion and relishing in the number of abortions they've had, what kind of people do that? What kind of people are so debased and deranged that that's okay? We're not going to get off into that right now. It's just something to think about. I think you all can answer that question to a certain degree for yourself. But we will, again, there's an episode where we're going to kind of talk about some of these things that I, in a way I think you all might find quite interesting but and helpful. But another consideration kind of what I talked about a moment ago. Abortion is one of the core issues that fundamentally change a, a culture and morality for the extreme worse. And at its core, it's, it's one of the key issues or problems is the devaluation of human life. And then try, on top of that, trying to use human wisdom to define any worth that human life has, if it has any at all, and it leads to some of the most horrendous folks imaginable. Again, it turns us into brutes. 
disgusting, immoral, selfish people. I mean, think about it. If we're willing to kill someone because they're inconvenient, if we're willing to kill a child because it's inconvenient, a person that is totally defenseless and whom we have the divine obligation to protect and raise, then what won't we do to eventually satisfy our selfish desires? If we're willing to, to murder a child for our own convenience sake, then where do we draw the line? If you're going to do that for convenience, what won't you do? What won't you do if you're going to be that selfish? We are without, as the Bible puts it, natural affection if we're able to do that. And I'm, I know there's a lot of people that aren't, but there's a lot of people in this country that are. And we need to realize that, and we need to realize the effect that it has on us. Even if we understand that abortion is evil and disgusting, if we allow it to happen, it does affect us. If we get careless to the evil that abortion or any other sin that you want to bring up has on us, it affects us in the long run. And we need to realize that. Again, how many of us just sit back and don't really, don't really think about it because it's too uncomfortable to think that that's happening in the good old U.S. of A.? Again, we're not going to get into specific application. It's something for you to ask yourself, for you to think about yourself, for me to ask myself, for me to think about myself. Now, there are a couple arguments um, for at least limited abortion that I want to talk about. Two of the key arguments that are made or issues that turn into specific arguments, and that's with viability and the personhood of the child. And we're, It's going to be brief, just a few points to think about. First, let's talk about the personhood of the child. It's made, the argument's made that, a, 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 as they put it, a fetus as a baby in the womb is just a clump of cells. It's not really an independent person. It doesn't count until it's born, that sort of thing. And since it's basically, and they will describe it at times as a tumor, then you can just have it removed. It's no big deal. Well, there's a lot of points you could consider with that. And even if you take the religious element, out of it, where the Bible clearly teaches that a soul is connected with the baby at conception. Also consider that at the point of conception, the child has completely unique DNA. It's identifiable as a uniquely different being from the mother or the father, and under any normal circumstances, that child will be born. They're just simply developing. It's not, a, you know, a tumor is basically mutated cells uh, of the person that has the tumor. A child, a, a fetus as they put it, but a child in the womb is a unique individual, a unique organism separate from the mother, taken care of by the mother, developed by the mother, but separate from the mother. So personhood, I mean, it, it's definitely there, but it does sort of bring us into the idea of viability as well, because it's like, well, that child is, as long as, you know, there's no severe issues, you know, like abortion, where you rip a child into pieces and pull it out of the womb, in the more extreme cases, when they're more developed, especially, well, actually, really, it it doesn't take long for them to develop to the point of that sort of butchery. But um, as long as that child, something doesn't happen, that child will be a person. And already they are uniquely identifiable as separate from the mother. So the personhood argument doesn't really make much sense. Again, even taking the religious side out of it, which oftentimes is a mistake. But a couple things to consider there. But then when we think about viability... Um, a couple issues with viability, and again, that was one of the things the court used. We talked about that was viability, but the viability—excuse <clears throat> me—the viability of a baby in the womb changes 
depending on the situation and changes as technology advances. What was accepted as the viable age, the age at which a, a baby could, a premature baby could survive outside the womb, even just five years ago, was significantly different and much later than what it is today. And you go back 30 or 40 years, a child can survive extremely prematurely in some cases. So how do you determine viability based off of that? Because it changes all the time, especially as technology changes, but even sometimes just the situation affects whether a child's able to survive or not. But that brings another issue up. How do you define viability? Is a child viable after it's born? And you're like, well, of course it is. Well, but think about it. If you define viability as it's usually defined with basically the ability to function without outside help. So like if a baby's born, you know, premature, it may have to be in um, the natal intensive care unit in, in NICU, I think they usually call it, um, where they basically have to be in almost like an artificial womb sometimes that it's not to that extreme, but basically they have to be in very specific circumstances to develop more until they can, you know, survive um, as a normal baby would. Well, but at the same time, viability is also usually determined as kind of the ability to survive um, outside the womb, or not outside the womb, excuse me, the ability to survive, you know, on your own or without outside help. And so that may generate another question in your mind and some other thoughts that we'll talk about in just a second. So if you define viability again as basically the ability to function out without outside help, like we talked about, that is kind of where the question comes up. Is a child viable after it's born? A child, he can't take care of himself after he's born. A baby can't take care of itself. A child can't take care of himself realistically for years. Although children at a certain point could theoretically take care of themselves. In some extreme cases, it has happened. So if you like, well, how do you define viability? Again, it completely changes all the time with the changes in technology and situation. It's not sound when a child's in the womb. It's not really sound when a child's outside of the womb. Now, some of the other questions that may have already generated in your mind, what about some older folks? If, if viability is just the ability to, in, in effect, survive on your own, survive without outside help, there's some old folks that can't survive without outside help. What about some people with mental or genetic diseases that can't take care of themselves? If you define viability that way, they're not viable. Well, um, there's you can probably see where this is going. And it goes also back to a little bit of that devaluation of human life that we talked about. But in some colleges and such, in areas of academia, there are some academics that are making the argument and that have made the argument that parents should be able to just kill a child if they don't want them up to the number I've heard up to two years old in some cases. There's people, there's academics that have made that argument that you should basically have a trial period. Well, if you don't like the kid, you just, just off them, whatever that argument's been made. And I've started to hear it a little bit from supporters of abortion. It's one of those things. It the what what's said in academic academia that's considered real, ridiculous may in a very few years be considered the norm. Uh, many abortionists 
or I would ask you this question, excuse me. How many abortionists support abortion up to birth when that would have been completely inconceivable 10 years ago in all but the most extreme circles of supporters of abortion? That's just one example. But now most hardline abortionists, a lot of abortionists, period, support abortion up to, and in some cases, immediately after birth. If, any, if you would have said that, again, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that, well, eventually people are going to say that, they would have called you, said you're ridiculous, said you're an extremist or some other similar title, I'm sure. And yet now that is common. That is a common stance for abortionists to take, extremely common for the supporters of abortion to take. All of that to say it is a logically inconsistent argument at the top of a big old slippery slope. And even just seeing the way that the arguments have changed in the last five or ten years, and then from the time of Roe versus Wade, the arguments that have changed, it has gone way farther than it should have because that's what sin does. It takes you long. It takes you farther than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and costs more than you wanted to pay. I've heard that since I was a young child from some preachers, and that's what sin does, and that's what evil does, and that's what abortion does. You can apply that to a lot of issues, but for the topic today, that's what abortion does. And I hope we understand that. And I hope that you found this episode helpful. I, I apologize. I meant for this to be a shorter episode, um, but I got going and my throat's been bothering me. And so I was going to, that was probably the reason I was going to try and keep it shorter. You may have noticed I don't sound the same and I've had to, I've struggled a little bit here or there, um, but I got going. This is something that, that I'm pretty passionate about and I think all of us could work me included could try and be a little more passionate about it we need to realize just how awful the situation is we never need to 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 downplay the seriousness of just and just how messed up the situation in this country with abortion is and we need to understand the the details of these recent developments with the roe v way being overturned and the leaking of the potentially being overturned and the leaking of the the document and the the riots and everything else we never need to forget just how brutal and evil abortion is. There's very few things that bother me very much, but seeing even even the uh, sort of like medical non-graphic depictions of what abortion does, it just, it turns my stomach, and it makes me mad, and it should. It should make anybody with a half a heart mad, and should just, oh, it's awful. And then I've seen more graphic pictures as well. Um, that are just mind-boggling that people can regularly participate in that sort of thing and not feel any remorse or disgust or anything. But at the same time, we should also be joyous about the developments against abortion in this country. Like I said at the beginning, there's a lot of bad things going on in this country, but that doesn't mean we should downplay the good news. That doesn't mean we should downplay when something goes our way because it may be our actions are, are making a difference. They will in the long run, and we should be joyous when we're handed a victory or a potential victory, when there's steps taken in the right direction. We don't want to be always negative. There's good out there, and we need to emphasize that while always making sure to fight evil. And we should pray that the evil people that are trying to stop these justices from making the right decision in the Supreme Court, we should pray that their, that their efforts fail and that these justices do make the right decision. 
So again, a lot of bad, a lot of horrible things, but we need to understand that there's good too, and we need to be joyous, and we need to make sure that we don't let up until the proper result is reached as well, the proper decisions reached in this case. So a little bit of good news, some bad news, um, but uh, or morbid news, I guess I should say. Um, but we need to realize that there are both, and we don't want to overemphasize one or the other. Please share this episode with others. It doesn't take much time for you, but it really does help me. Don't forget about our various social media outlets and our YouTube channel for The Kentuckian. And if you'd like to support me in a more personal way, my Patreon is linked in the description with the other outlets that I mentioned. And remember, friends, as long as you and I are doing what's right, we make a big difference in this old world. The Kentuckian, trying to make a difference one person at a time.